0: Hello, and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondek. And today, I'll be speaking with Jesper Juhl about his new book, The Art of Failure, an essay on the pain of playing video games. Jesper Juul is assistant professor at the New York University Game Center. He's the author of Half Real, Video Games Between Real Rules and Fictional Worlds, and A Casual Revolution, Reinventing Video Games and Their Players, both published by the MIT Press. Jesper Yule. thanks for taking time to talk to the MIT Press podcast today. Thank you. So it seems a little puzzling that we play video games to have fun, but that we are pretty much guaranteed to experience failure during the game, which most of us don't particularly enjoy. But as you point out, we also don't like not failing to some degree when we play these games. So does this mean the fun we plan on having playing a game must have greater appeal than facing or not facing failure?
1: Um, I think the short answer to that is that whenever we play a game, we are making a kind of emotional gameable. So... Um, in a way, you can have like lower or higher stakes depending on the time investment or the public kind of acknowledgement of the event or the personal importance you assign to it, or the kind of even kind of tangible potential losses or rewards if you're playing for say money. Uh, and and I do think we make kind of very rough estimates of this gamble, and we factor in like failure and time investment and and also in a way a kind of personal identity thing that that. I think we always, for different games, we might have different kind of investments in terms of how important it is for us to perform well in that particular game. Um, So I do think we make these kind of rough calculations, but um, I think the thing with humans also is that we are really terrible at making calculations like that. So if you're an optimist, you'll, you'll probably be completely unable to believe that failure is a possibility, for example. And so... In the book, I discuss a, a particular game I played called Super Real Tennis, which was a small game on my my cell phone, and I, I talk about um, how I, I kind of continued to play this game, and the game was always telling me that I should read the manual, basically, and this is kind of very, very frustrating, obviously. And so, this was a kind of continued emotional gamble, right? I continued to sink more time into playing the game, and then. The more time I'd sunk into it, the more embarrassed I felt that I hadn't completed the game. I wasn't, I wasn't progressing, and so in that way, uh, and at the same time, the larger my 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 frustration was, and the larger my <laughs> time investment was, the larger my motivation was to escape that frustration. But the only way I could do that was to play more, <laughs> uh, and I do think that. Uh, This is a kind of fundamental thing that you kind of have ongoing whenever you play a game, that you have these kind of calculations, but it just so happens that we're not very good at making these things. And it's not really, I don't think it adds up as as math uh, in the end. Um, I should say another thing I thought was interesting writing this book was that it is kind of scary or unpleasant to admit to failure in general and it's also a bit unpleasant to admit to various aspects of my own personality such as being a sore loser. Um, I do think I share this with many other people but it's also something that we generally don't like admitting to. Um, And I should say I think also as a video game theorist I think I I feel I should be someone who's very good at all video games but I'm not. and I do feel I get a great enjoyment from games, but I also realize that I probably don't really look or don't really play the part all the way, so I think we often talk of games as being fun, but I think it's just clear that this is not really the right word if you watch someone like me playing or or most play most players.
0: Is there a degree of stickiness that game designers have to think about in terms of failure? I mean, do they say, well, if we make this too challenging and our target audience experiences a degree of failure, they're not going to want to play this game. Is this something game designers consider?
1: Oh, definitely. I mean, so, so in game design, we often talk of things like balancing or, or that a game should be neither too easy nor, nor too hard. Um, I think that the issue with those is that they don't necessarily really explain why. It just kind of notes that there is some kind of balance and some kind of duality between success and failure. Uh, But I think also that what you can see is that these kind of things tend to change over time. So if you look at early 1980s, especially home computer games, some of them were practically impossible. And then you can say perhaps in in very general terms that during the history of video games, games have become... be- begun to come with larger or stronger and stronger, stronger promises that you'll actually be able to complete them if you put in the time. And now you have a kind of counter movement that is certain super difficult games like Dark Souls or even smaller games like Super Hexagon perhaps which are kind of going back the other way and, and making it kind of much more challenging again. but So I think that in a way it's really about perhaps the game kind of forging a kind of contract with you as a player so that when you when you play a game, you have an understanding of, say, how how much time you are expected to put in be- before you are able to progress, and it's much more about, in a way, that the game design being ma- being able to like communicate and manage this to the player. But there's actually a kind of funny, kind of funny footnote to that, which is that you can say that the whole the whole kind of subgenre or the whole idea of puzzles actually tends to involve. Um, a kind of moment where you're absolutely sure that the puzzle can't be completed so in a way you can say puzzles are a kind of meta <laughs> version of this whole situation that generally speaking uh, I think a good game design tends to involve making sure that the player can see like the path forward like how they would be able to improve but you can also see that in puzzle design there is a large uh, kind of element of puzzle design which is about making the situation being appear completely impossible and then also i think you see many players like shouting in frustration that or, or like exclaiming loudly that this puzzle is impossible but you also if you kind of have some kind of trust in the game design you you do this kind of with the awareness that there probably is a way out but that it's kind of part of the art of puzzle design to make a, 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 any solution appear impossible at first
0: you read about how people outside of games are trying to use game design in areas that are most assuredly not games. Have there been successes, and if so, what separated them from the failures?
1: Well, I think if you start in the negative, and so, so this is often called uh, gamification these days, but it has a much longer history, the, the idea of serious games going back to at least the 1970s, and perhaps even to some extent that a lot of traditional games, Math was actually uh, developed from, from kind of various fanciful uh, puzzles and so on. But uh, if we start in the negative, um, I think there's a kind of question about gamification, this idea of, of adding points and so on to kind of general activities. The first question, in a way, is isn't, is if we already did this. So if you think of all of these kind of programs, which like the employee of the month uh, situation and so on, um, I also discussed in the book the possibility that, in a way, you can say the the financial crisis in, in 2008 was caused to some extent by making <laughs> regular work uh, too game-like. So you can see a lot of interviews with people who worked in various banks ex- telling like, how they were worried about the quality of the loans they were approving, but they were told from higher-ups that they should just Im- approve everything because that, that, that was what led to bonuses. So you can see that, in a way, you had something that was very akin to a game with like point systems and goals and so on. But this led to this kind of huge collapse. Um, so you can see there is a kind of interesting uh, thing going on. And I think you can say part of the difficulty in in making reality or work uh, game-like is that when you set up a, like a goal system or a point system in a game, um, that in a way is to create value, right? so so if you tell the player that they have to eat as many dots as possible this wasn't necessarily obviously the case before, it's just like the game declares that this is what's valuable now but if you're trying to apply game design principles to other things then you, you, you run into the kind of measurement problem, you have to figure out what the best way of measuring things is and so a, a classic example was that during um, the Soviet era Uh, uh, chandelier factories were being awarded on the basis of the total weight of their chandeliers. So, uh, famously, Khrushchev is supposed to have complained in, I think, 1965, that chandeliers were becoming so heavy that they were dragging down the ceilings of people's apartments. And so, you can see, this is a kind of problem, right, that often when when people, both in the case of, of like, the financial crisis or this kind of Soviet-era bureaucracy, that if people are too held up to a measurement that doesn't really, or point system that does, doesn't really measure or award what it's supposed to award, you get all these kind of terrible, uh, <laughs> these kind of terrible outcomes, and so, so you can see that that's the reason it's this works so well in a game is because the game score system creates value, right? But it, the reason it can work terribly outside is because. Um, you're trying to create an artificial measurement of of what's good, and that measurement may or may not be be kind of sufficient.
0: So we have to watch out about a platonicization, platonicization or an over-abstractness of games from the real world. But you also write about how the experience of failure in games is somewhat akin to classical tragedy as well.
1: First of all, I think you, I think you can say the interesting thing about games is that relating to the previous point about measuring measuring your performance is that games are kind of poetry of action or poetry of measurement systems. So there are a, a particular, there's a kind of freedom for a designer to create whatever measurement system is the most interesting rather than the most truthful. And so that this kind of relates games to other kinds of art forms. And so I think there's a kind of paradox of failure, which is that in general we avoid failure, but when we play games we are deliberately seeking out failure even though it's something that we normally avoid. And this is actually... Quite similar to a very long-standing paradox called uh, the paradox of tragedy, usually, which is like why do we uh, seek out things like theater or cinema or, or or literature, even though they often give us emotions such as well sadness or, or even make us cry, even though these are things we generally don't like. And so, the paradox is that it seems that we want these things to be there. So, for example, in, in the case of games. Um, it's generally kind of considered uh, kind of un- unpleasant or, or kind of terrible if a game never makes you fail. So this is something that players will complain about. Uh, and similarly, um, if you watch Othello, I think it's safe to say that you, you, wa- you want Desdemona to survive, but if you actually go to a theater and there's a rogue uh, director who actually stages another version of the play where Desdemona does survive, um, the audience will generally be very kind of unhappy or angry, so there's this kind of double character to it. Um, and historically, there's kind of different answers to that. Uh, so I think in common discussion, people often talk about uh, something like catharsis, mentioning uh, mentioning um, Aristotle. Uh, the problem is that this doesn't doesn't seem quite right. So the idea of catharsis obviously is that in a way you'd be, you'd be cleansed of these unpleasant emotions at the end of the experience. But if you play a game then and you fail, then you really are filled with <laughs> emotions of, say, humiliation and defeat and inadequacy. So these are not things that you are cleansed of by the game. These are emotions that the game kind of produces in you. A- and so you can also see this is the difference between... Uh, kind of the paradox of failure and the paradox of tragedy is that in a way the paradox of failure is unique in that when you fail a game it really means that you were inadequate. So stories tend to concern the inadequacies, inadequacies of other people but games concern your personal inadequacies and then games kind of tend to promise you that
0: you can escape these inadequacies if you
1: play more.
0: Is there a concern that after repeated failures, players begin to internalize the failure and take it outside the game?
1: Well, I mean, so so, in a way, I think in, in, a, in a positive sense, I do think that, that games are really good at, at, at preparing you for the fact that if you put in time and effort, you will kind of get ahead or, or not necessarily get ahead, but that the, the way to, to improvement is to put in time and effort. Um, and I think this is, I think a generally kind of an important life lesson it's an important life lesson to like face failure and then be to to be able to overcome it but uh, and so I think if you if were to worry about some things it's just more like you could say the general kind of worry about art right that, that games in a way the, re- the title of the book is The Art of Failure so I say that games are really the art form that concerns our personal failure and our kind of, our kind of challenges in overcoming our personal failures and, and our challenges in facing our own failures and so in a way you can say that that the thing is that of course that games are slightly nice are, are designed in a better way than the regular world is right the regular world it doesn't really make any kind of promises that we can kind of improve ourselves and obviously games are i think much designed around a kind of optimal learning path right that games are designed in order to make us able to see our own improvements over time, uh, so this is also in a way where you can see that there's a lot of similarity between the issue of failure in games and and issues in say like uh, education. So there's one thing is the idea of learned helplessness that if a game or if a, if a test kind of prompts you to think that, say, like, you, it was your fault that you failed the test and there's no way of improving yourself, and this reflects that you're perhaps, say, stupid in general, then you can get into a kind of situation of, of learned helplessness and, and think that there's no way to to kind of get anywhere or actually improve yourself. And this is, like, a big problem in educational settings. I, I think you can say that perhaps the, the thing with games is that they're almost the other way around, that they tend to be designed such that you always have a, some kind of idea of how you would improve yourself or do better over time, especially in single-player games, of course.
0: Jesper Yule, the author of The Art of Failure, an essay on the pain of playing video games. Thanks for talking to the MIT Press podcast today. Thank you. For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget, you can follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash MIT Press. And you can also follow us on Twitter, where we are at MIT Press. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press Podcast. Copyright 2013, the MIT Press. All rights reserved.